Hi, I'm Mary Trump, and I'm here to let you know that my weekly podcast, The Mary Trump Show, is now a weekly live stream on YouTube. Every week, I'm joined by some of my favorite people at the intersection of politics, activism, and culture. And so far, my guests have included Ellie Mistal, David K. Johnston, Martina Navratilova, E. Jean Carroll, Fiona Hill, and Malcolm Nance, among other amazing guests. Together, we're taking on current events and the many challenges our country is facing. So subscribe to youtube.com slash Politicon to join us every week on Thursdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. That's youtube.com slash Politicon for The Mary Trump Show, live. Welcome back to Hashtag Sistersinlaw with Jill Winebanks, Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. Did you know that we have a brand new pale blue women's tea in the hashtag Sisters in Law merch store? You can go to politicon.com slash merch and get yours now. They're going fast. Um, today, we are getting together to talk about the legal issues surrounding the conflict in Ukraine, sharing our takes on the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, and examining Ginny Thomas's political activism and the ethical considerations it poses for the Supreme Court. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Uh, But, you know, before we get into it, you know, some people get really excited when the Oscars are coming up. Um, But for us, I think one of those great things that we anticipate that comes along every only now and then is the confirmation hearing process for a Supreme Court nominee. And so one of the things I'm really looking forward to is next week we are going to see uh, the hearings, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings with uh, the nominee by President Joe Biden, Katanji Brown-Jackson. And um, I'm just wondering what people might be looking for. I'm sure we'll talk more about it next week. But, you know, as people are watching those hearings next week, what are some of the things you guys might be looking for? Kim, you're a avid Supreme Court watcher. What are some of the things you're going to be looking for? (laughs) I think by and large, what this opportunity um, gives Judge Jackson is the ability to introduce herself to America so that people can get to know her, they can hear her voice, they can see how she is composed under fire um, and really put a person to this name that we've been talking about um, all the time. One thing that doesn't happen, I think we've talked about this a little bit before in Supreme Court confirmation hearings, really any judicial, but uh, any judicial confirmation, but Supreme Court for sure, is it's no longer <laughs> the days where you could get actual answers to questions about how they may rule on cases or what their judicial philosophy might be or how they approach cases. Because that's that's kryptonite, right? That will just be used against them in the increasingly uh, politicized atmosphere of confirmation. So we're going to hear her say a lot, oh, well, I shouldn't answer a question that on an issue that may come before me or that's decided law and that's all I'll say about that. So she's going to be very circumspect when it comes to how she'll do her job. Um, and it's unfortunate for all nominees, really, but it really is a chance for her to show that she's smart, that she's capable, that she can handle herself in a stressful situation, because that is stressful. And I look forward to seeing what she's got. What, what about you, Joyce? You know, I noticed that today the ABA released her rating, and she was unanimously rated well-qualified. For listeners who might not be familiar with that ABA process, it's a bipartisan process where lawyers in the circuit where she lives do this exhaustive sort of questioning of lawyers and judges and colleagues, and they ask sort of crazy questions as well as the typical legal ones to try to suss out whether the candidate has the right demeanor to be a judge. So the fact that she's gotten this unanimous, well-qualified vote. I noticed that uh, Clarence Thomas was only qualified, not well-qualified when it came to his turn to be evaluated. Um, I wonder if we'll see some Republicans cross over. You know, that happened a little bit on the Neil Gorsuch vote, where some Democrats said, you know, I don't love his some of his views, maybe, but I believe he's well-qualified. Um, and join the vote. Not very many of them, to be honest. But I wonder if for this historic confirmation of the first African-American woman to sit on the Supreme Court, we might see one of those rare moments of, of partisanship in an effort to move the country forward. Or maybe I have donned my ridiculous Pollyanna costume and that's no longer 
you know, possible in America. But I'm nonetheless hopeful. What about you, Jill? Well, I am Pollyanna, so I am happy to join you in hoping for that. But I think, and it wouldn't be an answer to the question of what am I looking forward to, but what do I anticipate might happen, is I am far more fearful that there will be unfounded, unjustified, unsubstantiated attacks that have no relationship to the qualifications. If Katanji Jackson were a white man, she would have all of the traditional qualifications that any candidate has ever had for nomination. And there is absolutely no reason that anyone should vote against her. And they may not like all of her decisions. They may not like all of her views. But she is qualified by intellect and experience and brings a diversity to the court, including having been a defender, not just a prosecutor, um, that make her so well qualified. And I hope that we will be addressing the qualifications that she has that are the equivalent of or actually exceed many of the people who have been appointed in terms of her experiences longer on the bench, et cetera. So that's what I'm looking forward to is a fair vote. And I do hope that there will be some Republicans who will admit that she is a qualified candidate for the court and that it's up to the president to get to choose the one. Well, I'm no Pollyanna. I'm a pragmatist, and I think they're going to beat her up. I think they're going to work pretty hard to do it. I still think she's going to get confirmed because, as you have all said, her uh, qualifications are exceptional. But I don't think that matters. I think for some senators like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton, this is all about an opportunity to beat up Joe Biden. And so because she is his nominee— there will be a lot of questions, you know, and they'll find something like, you know, footnote 42 from an article she wrote when she was in law school, and they'll take it out of context and say, isn't it true you wrote that defendants are entitled to representation? How dare you? You're pro-crime. You know, so there'll be something like that. And so often, and you guys have all watched these things, they, it doesn't even matter what the answer is. It has nothing to do with what the potential answer is. It's all about the question. These senators just need the soundbite for the six o'clock news back home. And they want to pound the table and try and portray Biden's pick, whoever it is, as a radical leftist, soft on crime uh, patsy. And so I'm sure there'll be questions like that. I'm sure she will be well prepared. She will patiently endure them and then, you know, give an appropriate answer. So I think that's all fine. And it's unfortunate that candidates have to endure that these days uh, to have the, the not only the privilege, but the responsibility of serving on our nation's highest court. But I also agree that with the point that Kim made about introducing themselves to America, and I think that portion is really important. This will happen the first thing Monday. The very first thing that happens is usually the person's home state senator will introduce them um, and tell uh, the, you know everybody a little bit about the person. And then oftentimes the person themselves gets to give that opening statement and they will introduce their family members who are there. And I always find that very endearing. You know, she's got two daughters and a husband. They'll get introduced and, you know, the, the daughters will kind of cringe a little bit like, oh God, mom, I can't make, believe you're making me do this. Um, and that'll be good, right? Very humanizing. And I think it's really important to remember that these people who are making decisions on the court are fellow humans, fallible humans, smart humans, qualified humans, but humans nonetheless. And so I think the process is very useful for that purpose. Um, Kim, I just wanted to get back to one thing. You wrote a piece in the Boston Globe this week about um, representation uh, in the form of Katanji Brown-Jackson. And I wonder if you could just say a word about that. Yeah, it just so happens that uh, her confirmation hearings come right after the House passed uh, the Crown Act. And what that does is that it explicitly includes in anti-discrimination laws that prohibit uh, discrimination based on race, uh, among the immutable qualities that make up race, natural hairstyles, black natural hairstyles. We have hair that is curlier, crinklier, kinkier, thicker, and different from other people. But for all of us, I think just about every black person in America uh, has faced at one time or another this idea that wearing our hair in our natural state or wearing it in styles that are meant to protect the hair because it is very fragile um, is somehow 
goes against the rules or is unprofessional or shouldn't be accepted, even in the military, only recently has the military allowed black hairstyles uh, to be included as proper um, appearance in their rules. And it's a form of discrimination. It is a form of racism, even if people don't realize it. But sometimes it's very difficult, although you should be able to bring for example, a Title VII action, if someone discriminates you or fires you because of the state of your hair, um, it's hard because it's hard to prove that intent. So we really need laws at both the state and federal level that explicitly lays out for people, no, you cannot tell someone uh, that because their hair is in locks that they can't have a job, that they need to change it, that they need to straighten their hair in order to be on television. In journalism, we were told that all the time, that if we're Black, you have to straighten your hair because America won't accept you. I made a point when I started doing television to stop straightening my hair because I thought America needed to oh, accept awesome. me just as I am. And I think having Katanji Brown-Jackson with her beautiful sister locks uh, before America is such an important moment to bring that home. That is professionalism personified, and she will show that. You know, I was so glad you wrote about that, Kim, because we had a prosecutor in my office long before I was the U.S. attorney who wore her hair naturally, and and she was, in addition to being drop-dead gorgeous, a very smart, highly qualified lawyer before she came to our office, and a brilliant trial lawyer, a brilliant prosecutor in complicated cases. And there was a lot of pushback from the guys um, about her hair. And they came to me and said, you need to go to this woman and tell her she can't wear her hair like that. And I was like, y'all picked the wrong girl to come to for that sort of advice. Um, and she ultimately kept her hair natural. At the time, I didn't think about it as sort of a statement um, about, you know, really encouraging people to be more acceptant of black women. I just thought her hair is gorgeous and it's none of their business how she wears it. I'm so glad you all have given us this moment to appreciate how important and how difficult that decision can be for black women so we can all be better allies. Yeah, you know, so important. Um, I, I remember uh, hearing from the Muslim Arab community uh, in Metro Detroit, mm-hmm. um, many of whom have been here for multiple generations. They came at a time when uh, you could get a very high-paying job on the assembly line at the Ford Motor Company. And so many people came, but the idea then was America as melting pot and assimilation. And we should all look like, uh, you know, the, the well-dressed white man. Uh, and everybody should look like that because that's what professional looked like. And I think it's been so great to see that professional can mean a headscarf and professional can mean um, uh, natural hair and professionalism can mean women in something other than a navy blue suit with a little red tie. Uh, Jill, I bet you had a few of those in your wardrobe back in the day. Um, so I think it's a great thing and a great moment that should not go uh, unrecognized. I was very much moved by Kim's piece. And I, I have to say, though, it isn't just black women who've had this problem. I was having problem in one position and went to the president of the organization who said, you're doing everything really well. Your job is terrific. But you know, your hair is permed and frizzy, and it doesn't look like the image of our profession. You should wear it pulled back in a bun. And he meant it in the most wonderful, helpful way, and I followed his advice. I did not perm my hair. I wore it totally straight. So it does affect all women as to how we are perceived as part of the profession. And that was at a time, though, when women were maybe 5% of the profession. Now that women are 50% of the profession, we should be able to wear our hair any way we want. I totally agree with that, Jill. The only pushback I would say is, yes, we should never be judged by our appearance and how we choose to wear our hair. But for you, that was a choice. We're talking about, for us, this is how the hair grows out of our head. And so to say that that is unprofessional would be the same as saying your brown skin is unprofessional. So it's a little bit different. Um, Oh, it's definitely worse. Yes, but I take your point that women face all kinds of discrimination. Well, with that, why don't we turn to our first topic? 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in its third brutal week. And as we continue to see harrowing scenes and our hearts continue to break for the people of Ukraine, there is also a lot to talk about in terms of the law. So, Jill, I'd like to start with you. We've received a lot of questions about how Vladimir Putin can be held accountable. So, Jill, can you tell us uh, about the crime of aggression? Is that an option for holding him accountable? It is, but it's not an immediate uh, punishment, and it's not something that will stop the aggression right now, something that needs to be done through probably diplomacy or military victory. Uh, there are what is known as the crime of aggression, which is the responsibility of a leader who illegally invades another country. And that is what Putin has done here. The people who are invading are also committing what is known as war crimes, which is different than the crime of aggression. The crime of aggression is only the responsibility of the leader. But war crimes are things like targeting civilians, targeting hospitals, targeting a theater that's filled with children. Those are war crimes, and the soldiers on the ground and the military officers who are directing them are guilty of those war crimes. Under the UN, there is an international criminal court, and that is where they would be tried for these crimes. And right now, the international criminal court is investigating the facts and the evidence and gathering and putting together what is a pretty compelling case for the commission of both the crime of aggression and war crimes. The problem is Russia can veto anything because it's on the Security Council and has veto power and because it has not submitted to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So there's a limit to what can be done. There is a benefit to the investigation and the public release of that information because it will influence public opinion and mobilize the world to work against this kind of behavior. So it is a worthwhile thing. He could be tried in absentia. That has happened in the past. But it doesn't put him in jail. And the only way he can be arrested is, one, if, like Hitler, he loses the war and then his top people were arrested and tried at the Nuremberg trials. So he has to, be, he has to either lose in order to get arrested or he has to travel somewhere. Anywhere outside of Russia, he can be arrested any, anywhere that is a member of the International Criminal Court, which is pretty much a lot of the world not including the U.S. either, I have to point out. Um, Ukraine has a limited uh, membership. It has submitted to the jurisdiction of it. So the crimes committed in Ukraine are within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So if we're looking to stop the war and the carnage and the atrocities, that's going to take either military victory or it's going to take... Um, uh, well, that's pretty much it. I, amazing diplomacy. And there is some hope right now that there's some diplomacy going on that could lead to at least a ceasefire, which would be a very welcome relief to everybody who's not sleeping nights because of the terror going on. So while we wait to see what the ICC and the State Department does uh, in terms of diplomacy and war crimes. Barb, the Department of Justice is ramping up its efforts to target the oligarchs who support Putin. What's it doing? Yeah, and you know, sometimes I think it, it seems like uh, a feeble response when people are dying by bombs every day, but it is an effort to try to, uh, you know, assert some pain on Russia to try to pressure them to stop and also to stop funding Russia. So, you know, there are all these oligarchs who are Putin's uh, hand-picked friends to run various industries in Russia. And they have stolen all the public money from Russia and extracted it uh, and controlling these industries, which must answer to Putin. So it's a, it's a way of giving him control over all of their private industry. But what they do in turn is they take that money and they invest it all over the world. They get it out of Russia. And so there are you know real estate businesses um, in in the United States that are there under the names of shell companies for Russia, or they're in other countries around the world. And so we heard last week that Merrick Garland had formed a uh, kleptocracy task force. That's what they call it when you, you know, steal money from the, the state 
uh, you know, within the Justice Department to gather this. But it really is only as good as your foreign partners, because as we saw in the Paul Manafort case, what re- often happens is the oligarchs aren't keeping all of the stuff in their own names or in one country. They're spreading it all over the world. They're putting it in shell corporations or bank accounts with different names uh, and straw account holders and other kinds of things. And so it's very challenging to find these things. And so by hiding these assets, they're able to evade some of those sanctions. And if you want the sanctions to be effective, you have to be able to find the assets. And so this week, I thought a very significant announcement was made that the United States was going to partner with a number of different countries, many of the Western European countries, as well as Australia, uh, Canada, and Japan, um, are launching what they call the Russian Elites, Proxies, and Oligarchs Multilateral Task Force. And the beauty of that name is that the acronym is REPO. They are the REPO man for Russian (laughs) oligarchs. You got your money tied up in a yacht? We'll take that. Thank you very much. And you've got it positioned in Monaco? Like, okay, we'll find it because we're working with the authorities there. Uh, You know, all these things get put all over the world. And now by working together, I think they can really streamline the process for putting some teeth behind those sanctions. So I think that's um, a really important effort that lawyers can do to help contribute to the war effort. I wish there could be some sort of reality show that shows these, you know, these yachts getting towed away. (laughs) I love it. There's somebody who's keeping tabs of how many yachts each country has seized. I can't remember who it is. It's on Twitter. And I love looking at, you know, France, three, England, two. (laughs) It's like the gold medal counts at the Olympics. It's the the vessel count. Nation. <laughs> it's wonderful to see the world working yes, uh-huh. together and yes. to see, I mean, I think uh, President Biden has done an amazing mm-hmm. job of making this a global effort, not a U.S. effort. Mm-hmm. And that's why this is happening. So, Joyce, you wrote a piece for MSNBC, and the link is in the show notes. Everybody should check it out. Uh, but it serves as an important reminder of how we got here, at least one of the reasons why we got here. And it involves that first impeachment of the former president. Tell us about your piece. You know, I wrote because in conversations with friends, really smart, really well-informed friends, I found that a lot of people had forgotten about the first impeachment. It was, after all, 2019. A lot has happened since then. Um, And I bet most of our listeners actually remember that the first impeachment happened because President Trump had a phone call. He called it a perfect phone call. And it was with Volodymyr Zelensky. Shortly after he was elected president, he'd had a big parliamentary win. Trump calls him up, and the call is supposed to be Trump congratulating Zelensky for the win. And Trump goes off script almost immediately. Zelensky mentions that he'd like to buy some javelins. It's a a, um, defensive weapon. And Trump says to Zelensky... But first, I need you to do me a favor. And it devolves into this absolutely unbelievable call where Trump tries to convince Zelensky that he should announce an investigation, a corruption investigation into Joe Biden. And there's no basis for that. It's just it's just junk. It's it's typical Trump trying to get somebody to announce an investigation so he can just sort of run it straight up the middle like he did in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. Zelensky doesn't do it. But I think it's important for us to remember those facts, you know, because the takeaway is we now have Donald Trump, who last week all but announced uh, over the weekend that he plans to run again in 2024. And this is not a guy who's a friend of besieged democracies. As Jill said, Joe Biden did amazing work declassifying information so the United States could tell in advance the story of what Russia was going to do. And Joe Biden controlled that narrative. That was why Russia was unable to stage a false flag attack. Joe Biden put NATO together, even after the damage that Trump had done to the NATO alliance, to stand together on this. And as we all know, Trump was no friend to NATO. Trump was, if anything, in Putin's hip pocket. I'm sure you all remember the issue where he had the translator destroy notes of a conversation with Putin. We know that between 2017 and 2019, Trump and Putin met five times. 
and Trump refused to keep records of those meetings. There aren't even in classified records. There aren't full records of those calls. So it's another reason to be very wary, to remember that today, if Trump was still in the White House, we could be in an awfully different situation than we're in. Ukraine could be in an awfully different situation. And instead of really being on his hind legs, Putin could be much more successful in this moment than what we're seeing. Yeah, I had a taxi driver the other day who was telling me, uh, you know, this war is terrible, isn't it? Yes. I said, yes, the war is terrible. And he said, you know, we wouldn't be in this situation if Donald Trump were still president. He's strong. (laughs) Uh, Vladimir Putin wouldn't try this if Trump were in office. And, you know, I I said to him as politely as I could, Donald Trump, um, if he were in office, has called him a a savvy genius. If Donald Trump were in office, Putin wouldn't... uh, need the U.S. in any way, he'd just go in and take it. Um, He was using Trump as his patsy to uh, destabilize Europe and um, uh, NATO and try to uh, reduce the power of NATO. And so all of those things, um, you know, were were in act while Trump was there. You know, if you can do it uh, through the front door, you don't need to do it through the back door. And that's what he was doing with Donald Trump. So um, 100%. Yeah, so the idea that somehow... Trump would have stood up to him and like gone to war and been strong is just the most utter nonsense I've ever heard. Trump tried to destroy NATO. The reason that Vladimir Putin is losing is the strength of NATO uh, is not just the United States. It's the strength of NATO holding firm in the West uniting together. Trump tried to tear. He called NATO uh, allies, NATO allies deadbeats, essentially. He gave classified information to to the Russian foreign minister. I mean, he did so many things that would have aided Putin's ability to actually have been successful in this. NATO and the, the strong will of the Ukrainian people and the united support that the United States and other Western allies have. Trump, you know, degraded and his allies degraded the people of Ukraine. So, I mean, I just, no matter what you think politically, you can, if you want to love Trump, love Trump, but you cannot factually make a claim that this would be a better situation for the people of Ukraine if Donald Trump were the president. It's just, it's, it's. So Barb, I want to hear your real version of what you really said, not your cleaned up version of what you said (laughs) to the taxi driver. he was still driving me to my destination. So I did say (laughs) that as politely as that. But, you know, seriously, it is so worthwhile to arm yourself with the facts because you are going to have conversations like the conversation Barb had. I've been having those with people. And something that that has caused people to really listen is these early comments that Trump made when Russia was invading Ukraine. It It was just those early moments before American public opinion had swelled. And Trump made this comment about what a genius move, how savvy it was of Putin to say that his troops that were adjacent to the border were there as peacekeepers. You know, Trump was praising Putin for that. The notion that that Putin would have been afraid to invade is just absolute bunk. We need to all arm ourselves with those facts so we can, in a very gentle way, convince people to reconsider their opinions when they think Trump would have been the savior of Ukraine. I think his worst comment, President, former President Trump's worst comment was not the one you quoted, but his saying, it was genius of him to think, oh, a few sanctions and I can get all this territory. It was a basic real estate transaction yeah, to Donald yeah. Trump. We can take it and, oh, so a few sanctions, big yeah, death, deal. And all the That's death the along the way, kind of thing right? that would have encouraged yeah. him. Exactly. Well, I'll just leave it with um, the last thing I'll say about my taxi driver, Joyce, is bless his heart. so y'all i have to tell you something really incredible about this my family is ukrainian jewish i think i told you that except growing up we always said russian but we can't trace our family back in ukraine and so my cousins and i have been sort of obsessed with that you know thinking do we have family in ukraine that we should try to figure mm-hmm. out and sponsor and bring them over here. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the Ukrainian Jewish community. I'm randomly on my ancestry the other night because my husband can trace his family's history back to Robert the Bruce. You know, if you're like Scottish mm-hmm. and Irish, you go back forever. And I'm looking and I notice that there's somebody that has my granddad on their family tree. And so I just randomly message her and, and say, here's my email address. I don't know anything about my ancestry. I get this amazing email from her, and it goes back four generations 
in Russia. Wow. And oh, we're like, amazing. we're some sort of cousins. But I mean, it was, it was like so moving to see those names and dates and places on paper. I can't tell you how moving it was. No, oh, that's amazing. Wow. Were you able incredible. to identify family that you could help? We don't know. We're now in the process of, of going forward. One of my, you know, it's a big family, seven kids on one side and six on the other. So one of my many, many cousins who's really good at doing this is now trying to take that information and go forward again. But I'm doing, there's a, Jewish Jen is doing seminars right now, and I'm going to do like a six-hour seminar tomorrow um, that's specific to figuring out Ukrainian connections. Interesting. Well, if you need immigration lawyers, I've been helping a friend here uh, who does, who's Ukrainian, not Jewish, but Ukrainian, and is trying to help her family. And they're frankly having trouble Getting out is easy, obviously, Um, and getting into Europe is easy, but it's not as easy getting into the U.S. Thank you. I'm glad to know that. It's been her experience. Yeah. I thought the best story of the week was England waiving their quarantine on pets and just telling Ukrainians, come, bring your pets. We love you. We want your cats. Oh. It makes such a difference. I mean, even one of the lessons from, like, hurricane relief and stuff here is that a lot of people lost their lives because they didn't want to leave their pets behind yeah. Yeah. and because um, they're members of the family. And so doing that was so smart just to encourage people to, to come. That's wonderful. Georgia legislators introduced a bill this week that would prohibit discussion about gender identity and sexual orientation in private, that is private schools, not public, but private K to three classrooms, where I hardly think they're discussing sexual orientation in third grade. They did this the same day that Florida passed its parental rights in education bill, better known as the don't say gay bill now awaiting what I assume is the assured signature of Governor DeSantis. Uh, The Georgia law is considered unlikely to pass, but it is part of an alarming trend. So let's look at what's happening in Florida, Tennessee, Kansas, Indiana, and probably a lot of other states. And let me start with you, Kim. What is in those bills? What does the Florida bill, for example, do? Because that one is close to becoming law. Yes, so there are a lot of bills coming down the pike uh, that are aimed at limiting teachers and school administrators' ability to even acknowledge that the LGBTQ community exists uh, in their lesson plans. So the one that has gotten a lot of attention is uh, the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill out of Florida, and it prohibits teachers uh, in grades kindergarten through third grade from mentioning sexual identity or sexual orientation at all. And it includes, we've talked a lot about vigilante measures that empower individual citizens to enforce laws. Well, it includes a provision, uh, not quite, that doesn't quite take it all out of the hands of state administrators, but it does allow people to bring civil suits against teachers, against principals, against school administrators. If the mention of LGBTQ issues or sexual identity or anything involving um, LGBTQ uh, life is mentioned in those grades. Now, it's important to know that, I mean, just think about it. Imagine if you could not mention you know, your your European heritage in those grades, or you could not mention Black people in those grades, or you can mention anything. These are fundamental parts of what people are. These are things that children recognize. And to say that this is so foreboding that not only can it not be mentioned in school, but if it is, the person will get in trouble is something that a child most definitely understands and recognizes. And I think that this is so... Um, dangerous. Look, we know that politics can be ugly and that there is often uh, this push, particularly by folks in the Republican Party, to turn to culture wars, to try, particularly in election years, to try to gain traction because they know that supporters respond to that. But I think that there's something particularly bad in doing that to children. But that's not the only law. There are other bills that are aimed at K through 12, 
in in places including Florida, also in Tennessee, there is a a bill that would ban public schools um, from using textbooks or any instructional uh, materials to quote promote, normalize, or support or address lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender lifestyle. First of all, it's not a lifestyle; it's who people are. Um, there are similar bills up coming up the pike in Kansas um, and in other states. But to me, I think, again, getting back to this point about how children learn, what children learn is right and wrong, and how it reflects um, how children see themselves and their family members. You know, I had a situation where someone in my family had a difficult time with another family member coming out as gay. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it was just a concern. And one of the things that this family member said, the one who was concerned, said, was like, well, what about the kids? What about, you know, the grandkids and the family? What will they think about this? And I said to this person, are you kidding me? That grandchild that you're talking to who was in probably about preschool age at the time, there are probably so many people in her school, her classmates, who have two dads, who have two moms, who have one mom, one dad, like all kinds of families in all kinds of shapes, sizes, and and shades, and, and backgrounds. And it's like nothing to them. This isn't harming them. It's trying to make a political point and using children. So for me, it's very difficult just to talk about the law and the facts of this without getting very upset. Because I can only imagine if racism or race, period, could not be taught when I was in K through three and the difficulty and the confusion that that would cause for me in trying to figure out where I belong in this world and how to navigate that. Because you have to learn that from an early age. I hurt for the 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 people who I know in my life, children who realized that they were trans when they were in elementary school and had the strength to tell their parents and Luckily for them, they had school boards, school systems that had plans in place that were ready for them and welcoming and helped other te- uh, and helped make sure that other parents and other students were welcoming to them, too. That's what we should be doing. We should understand that these trans children will grow up if we if the world is the same as it is right now. Transgender people, particularly transgender women, particularly, particularly transgender women of color are astronomically more likely to be the victims of assault and murder in this country. They are murdered at an astonishingly high rate. It is dangerous to be a trans person in America. So we are teaching that, that it's wrong. We are ingraining the very, um, the very hateful fuel that leads to that statistic from kindergarten. Is this what we really want to do in America? I find it very very, very, um, very dangerous and, and very sad. Well, we'll be following how these bills progress in the hopes that maybe saner minds will prevail and they won't become law and won't prevent teaching. There's even fear that a teacher who is asked about who the woman she is with is and identifies them as, that's my wife, could be in violation of this law and could be fired for that. So that it's really a very broad uh, swath that could be prohibited under this law. But that raises the question, Barb, is the Florida bill constitutional? Yeah, you know, of course, uh, bills are constitutional if the Supreme Court says it is. And uh, it's sort of like an umpire in baseball. You're not, you know, I'm I'm safe, I'm I'm out. You know, you're not anything until the I say so, says the umpire. And that's true with our Supreme Court as well. So I don't know what our current uh, makeup of our Supreme Court would say, but I think that there is a very high probability that this statute, at least as written, the Don't Stay Gay statute, violates the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Um, There are two concepts under the Fifth Amendment in particular that I think this violates. One is the void for vagueness doctrine. As you just mentioned, Jill, what does it apply to or not? There's a concept that says, you know, the legality principle. We are entitled to know what is and is not forbidden under the law so that we can conform our conduct to comply with the law. And if you don't know what the law says, then you can't do that. And it's supposed to be written in a way that is understandable to a person of ordinary intelligence. Of course, the three of you are people of extraordinary intelligence, but if even you can't figure it out, imagine the poor ordinary person on the street. But it uses terms like uh, age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate and what is meant by that, that, uh, you know, you can't teach um, children of any grade uh, matters about 
sexual orientation or gender identity that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. Well, what, what's that? What does that mean? And so there's a concern that it's vague because, as you say, is it prohibited for me to mention my spouse if my spouse happens to be same sex? Um, is it prohibited for me to have a photo of my spouse uh, uh, if, uh, if, if I can't uh, talk about someone, uh, if, if I'm married to someone of the same sex? There's another doctrine under the Fifth Amendment that makes a uh, statute unconstitutional if it's overly broad. That is, it can apply to the behavior we're seeking to prohibit, but it could also apply to innocent behavior. And so those can be struck down for violations of due process as well. And so, for example, um, you know, maybe we don't want teachers talking to kids about what it means to be gay or sex education or whatever it is under this statute uh, as written, but it would also cover other kinds of things that perhaps were unintended consequences. Like if someone were to say, um, teacher, who is the... Uh, 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 Secretary of Transportation. Uh, well, that's Pete Buttigieg. Did the person just uh, teach something in violation of this statute? And I think most people in Florida would say, well, no, of course not. But the problem with overbreadth and statutes that can be interpreted in an overly broad fashion is it causes a chilling effect on teachers and others who are um, subject to the law. And so people to start to check themselves and they say, gee, I better not talk about Pete Buttigieg because I might get in trouble under the don't say gay bill. And uh, so it has a chilling effect that causes people to shrink from even coming close to the line. So for both of those reasons, I think this is unconstitutional under the Fifth Amendment. I think it would fail in a challenge on, under any faithful application of the Fifth Amendment. And, and Joyce, that raises the question of what is the justification? You know, what maybe justification is the wrong word. What are the arguments being made by the proponents of these bills? And what are the arguments against it? You know, usually there are two sides to these debates, two legitimate sides. But here, these bills, they're just largely political gamesmanship. Um, it's an effort to appeal to the most conservative part of the political base in states that increasingly in these House uh, seats, House legislators are running in heavily gerrymandered districts. And so they're appealing to the most fringe elements in their base. Um, and this is a good example of, of what's happening here. Many of these bills, uh, not the ones that we've been discussing, but these pervasive bills about transgender athletes, they're aimed at preventing transgender girls from participating in sports. And they've been proposed in states where that's not even a problem, where there's not even one example that people are pointing to. They're just purely performative bills brought by politicians who want to be able to say, you know, I'm on the right side of this terrible transgender and, and gay invasion of America. Um, the laws involve antiquated prejudice. They're cloaked in religiosity. And that's, that's you know, I think an interesting point because many of these same legislators are people who are horrified by the notion that Sharia law could be imposed in America. And yet they're borrowing, and let's just say with some minimal um, understanding, if, if they're Christian, of the Bible, which has a lot of uh, ambivalence when it comes to homosexuality, but they're trying to impose what they believe or their religious beliefs through these laws. So all that to say, these laws are mostly showboating. They're damaging and harmful to the lives of people who are already vulnerable in our society. And the real issue at bottom here that I find to just be deeply annoying in addition to the unfairness to people who deserve better from society is that we face real problems, right? I mean, not for nothing. We've got climate issues on the horizon. We have, for instance, infrastructure issues that need to be dealt with at the state level. And so to focus on this sort of just performative political stuff, I find to be deeply irresponsible from people who are supposed to be in our state legislators because they want to serve the people. Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, is back in the news this week. She's a well-known Steve Bannon-allied conservative activist, and now she's acknowledged being present at the January 6th rally on the Ellipse. 
But look, she has First Amendment rights like everybody else in America. If she wants to go to a rally being held by a soon-to-be former president, I suppose she can go. Barb, a lot of concerns have been raised about her presence there. Am I right in thinking that it's protected First Amendment activity? Are there legitimate concerns about conflict of interest given her husband's position? I think the correct answer, Joyce, is yes to both. Ginny Thomas certainly has a First Amendment right to do whatever she wants to do. If she wants to show up at a Stop the Steal rally on the Ellipse on January 6th in support of a claim that has not a scintilla of uh, support that there was election fraud, she has an absolute right to do that under the First Amendment. But I also think that you are correct that this does create a conflict of interest, not for her, but for Clarence Thomas, who is a Supreme Court justice. The recusal statute is actually kind of murky on this. There are kind of two different things to look at. One is the code of judicial conduct for United States judges, but it only applies to the lower courts. It doesn't technically apply to the Supreme Court. Um, The Supreme Court is bound by the federal recusal statute, but that one only talks about financial conflicts of interest. And so they don't, uh, aren't subject to the broader conflict of interest rules that uh, the lower court judges are bound by, which say that a judge shall disqualify himself or herself in a proceeding in which the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned such as some of the subpoena matters that have already come up before the court. Uh, I think that's an area where Justice Thomas's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Now, of course, I think it's important to remember that we are not our spouses. Uh, My spouse reminds me of that all the time. Uh, We saw George Conway say all kinds of things, spoke his mind when Kellyanne Conway was in the White House. And so I think that uh, justices have right now the ability to decide for themselves whether there is an actual conflict of interest. But I think that they're not in the best position to make their own decisions about whether the public might reasonably uh, be concerned about their bias. Joyce, when you and I were U.S. attorneys, you may remember there was a rule that we did not get to decide our own recusals. We had to flag potential conflicts And then the executive office for U.S. attorneys would decide ultimately whether we were accused. And I think that's appropriate only because I think it's hard for us to be objective about that sort of thing, especially when it is a reasonable concern about your uh, bias, that people would would just have a perception that you can't be fair. Even if you say, I can be fair, I know I can be fair. That may be true, but if the public perceives you to be unfair, then that undermines the credibility of the court. And so uh, I think that, yes, a, there is a you know certainly a legitimate concern about a conflict of interest here. You know, I have a little bit of a personal perspective, not that my husband is smart enough to be a Supreme Court justice, but he's an Alabama trial judge. And I'm very careful to not get involved in anything that could even conceivably be seen as bearing on a case that's in front of him or that might come in front of him. And in the very rare occasion where there's a conflict when a case comes to him, Bob just recuses. You know, judges hate doing that. It imposes on their colleagues on the court, but it's the right thing to do. And in the right case, you should do it. Um, And I think maybe that bleeds in, Jill, to Jenny Thomas's situation. I don't think she's as careful as I am, or at least doesn't give the appearance of being, to avoid getting involved in issues that her husband could be called upon to decide. You know, the concerns about her behavior go a lot deeper than just her presence at that rally. Can you talk a little bit about what the swirling controversy involves and whether she might even find herself caught up as a player in the January 6th investigations? There are two aspects to this answer, I think. And one is, in terms of the January 6th investigation, there has been questions raised about her being a funder of a busload of people, of, you know, bringing people to the Capitol for January 6th. So that brings her directly into, was she a funder? Was she a planner? Could she end up being a witness called? And that's where it gets really messy. But if we go back to how careful you are, and in recognizing your First Amendment rights as much as Ginny Thomas's First Amendment rights, you as a couple have certain obligations to each other and to the public to not create an appearance of impropriety. When, as government employees, we fill out our financial disclosure forms, it's not just your money, it's your husband's money as well. 
whether you have separate accounts or not, you have to disclose all of the holdings of your spouse as much as of yourself. And that's because your spouse's financial interests could also. Now, she is, in addition, a member of many right-wing organizations that have been parties before the Supreme Court, either as a direct party or as a uh, friend of the court in filing a brief. And he is deciding those cases where her organization's interests are being decided. And so it seems to me that both from a standpoint of if she funded any part of the January 6th insurrection, then so did he. And that would be a clear conflict of interest. But similarly, if her organizations, where she's an officer of an organization, are filing briefs before the Supreme Court, that seems to me just as much a conflict of interest. So that's where I think it goes beyond just her attending a rally, which might not raise a conflict of interest, but her going beyond just being in the audience or doing something that involves a direct application to the Supreme Court for a decision Those are places where we need new rules of ethics. The laws and ethics that apply to court of appeals, federal court of appeals judges, at the very minimum, should apply to the Supreme Court. Well, that's a great lead-in for the question I wanted to ask Kim, our resident Supreme Court expert, because, you know, Kim and Jill touched on this. Typically, family members of those involved in public service appreciate the risk of even an appearance of a conflict of interest. It's not just an actual conflict, but even that appearance. And they have the good judgment to avoid um, those sort of situations. You know, this is why people go into public service. They go to serve. So why doesn't the Supreme Court operate under ethics rules like the rest of the courts do? What's the argument in favor of doing it this way? Is there any possible justification? So you are absolutely correct that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, operates under different rules. Technically, technically, the Supreme Court uh, justices, like every other federal judge is subjected to uh, federal ethics rules that require them to do things like, for example, disclose if they have a financial interest in a party, a company, for example, that appears before them to disclose that um, or disclose any other sort of ethical um, conflict of interest. The difference with the U.S. Supreme Court comes with the enforcement. There is no enforcement mechanism for U.S. Supreme Court justices. So in a sense, they answer to no one but themselves. This is different from federal appellate judges and federal trial level judges where there is actually an enforcement mechanism in place. So while technically the rules apply, it's sort of up to the Supreme Court justices themselves. They're on an honor system in how they adhere to them. And so you get situations like this where someone like Justice Clarence Thomas can and has rules in cases where there is a direct connection to the actions of his wife and by extension his own, uh, as Jill very well pointed out, particularly when it comes to funding, if you're in a household, if he has to include his wife's income in his financial disclosures if because they're so connected, if she is funding something that also connects him, but he has and uh, and can essentially continue to sit in cases um, because there's no one there to stop him because of this honor system. So there are ways to stop this. Um, One could be through the uh, judicial conference, which is headed by the Chief Justice John Roberts. Literally, John Roberts can push to change the way that these rules are enforced in a way that um, makes the Supreme Court Uh, just as uh, uh, have the same sort of enforcement mechanisms as others have. He has not done it so far, so I think that's a good sign that he will not do it now. Congress could act also to change the law to explicitly put Supreme Court justices in that same enforcement mechanism. They have not yet. Of course, there's also in Congress the power to impeach. The only way to remove a judge a Supreme Court justice from his or her post is through the impeachment process, which is exactly the same as the presidential impeachment 
process. That has only happened one time in our nation's history, and that was with Samuel Chase. But it's worth noting that in that case, if you go back in your history books and take a look at it, it was due to this very concern, this concern uh, by members of Congress that he'd become so politically influenced that he could no longer objectively carry out his job as a justice of the Supreme Court. I think that's something that will be a lot more difficult to do now. So essentially the answer, it's it's unsatisfying. It's probably unsatisfying to our listeners because I know it's unsatisfying to me, but that it's up to the Supreme Court justices themselves to decide whether or not to recuse. You know, there used to be a thing called shame and fear <laughs> of how even the appearance of uh public, uh, the, even the appearance of a conflict of interest would be so, you know, distasteful to the public that that is what would make the Supreme Court justice be sure to act in the right way. That's fallen by the wayside and we see the results of it. Don't you think that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who has made a big deal about the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court, could make some real strides here by saying, yes. we are going to change these rules and we are going to be bound by the same rules as every judge in America, uh, and we're going to recuse on this much broader basis. But yet he's resisted that, and I think he's even suggested yeah. that it would be a violation of the separation of powers for Congress to step in and require them to be accountable, You know that they can kind of police their own house. But you know, if, uh, if you want to have the public trust, you can't just say, you know, trust me to make my own decisions. You have to have yeah. those uh, systems in place, just as Joyce and I had. The Justice Department, I think, was a very good rule of having some objective party be the decision maker for recusals. Now, I suppose the counter argument to that is, well, we could just bump a judge, you know, justice off a case if we didn't want them there. But um, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you have the, the, the justices themselves be the arbiters of one, some, one of their members, uh, there's, there's got to be some way to alleviate that problem. Yeah, just as much as the Chief Justice is concerned about the um, institutional rep reputation of the court, he is also very resistant to change. Anything from, you know, changing the way that oral arguments are broadcast um, after COVID, which I think will be tough to go back. He, he's very trying to change the way things are done. He's very resistant to that. And we're seeing that play out here. You know, I'm shocked to find that there are judges who want to avoid letting anyone else make inroads into their own power. Shocked to find that there's gambling in Casablanca. Well, you know, this is the favorite part of our show where we uh, answer listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes from Suzanne who asks, how is the decision made as to where cases are filed? Jill, you once wrote a book on civil procedure. What's the answer? Well, that would be an overstatement. I was a student assistant to Professor Maurice Rosenberg, who was editing his very well-regarded civil procedure textbook. But the answer is basically the plaintiff decides where a case is filed. Uh, and I assume this question is referring to civil cases. So the lawyer for the plaintiff makes a decision as to where there is jurisdiction. So that means, is there some connection to a particular state? Was some of the conduct involved in the alleged action happen in a particular state or locality? That's how it gets filed. And that's really the simple answer, is it has to have some connection to the facts alleged in the complaint. And as long as there's some way to connect it, either the defendant is a resident in the jurisdiction or has done business in the jurisdiction or did a tort in the jurisdiction, that's how you get jurisdiction. And that can be in multiple places. It is very common that 
a defendant has taken actions against a plaintiff in more than one place. And then it's up to the lawyer to pick a place where he thinks that the law of that state is the most favorable. All right, there you have it, the casebook version. Um, I'll just add that in a criminal case, there are statutes that typically say that a crime should be uh, uh, filed, an indictment should be filed in the district where the crime occurred. Uh, It could be uh, in a place, if it's multiple uh, a crime occurred in multiple jurisdictions. It could be any of those places where the crime occurred and anywhere a crime began, uh, continued, or ended. So it can be multiple. And then it gets complicated when you start talking about the cyber world. Um, next question. And I'll just add one other quick thing for contractual things. I think if people, if you look at your credit card, mm-hmm. fine print and stuff, yes. there are often um, st- stipulated. So any disputes are decided under the laws of Delaware or something like that. There's also that. Very good. All right. Our next question comes from at Freedom Cactus, uh, who writes, if the whole world was out of real and other brands of toilet paper, would you buy Bill Barr's memoir? No. Oh, Not I see even what they then. did there. <laughs> Jill, you've been asking the question, who's buying this? It's a bestseller. You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I am reminded that the RNC bought something like 100,000 copies of Donald Trump Jr.'s book. And so one has to wonder whether these are not just, uh, you know, your average reader or some other group like that. Whether anybody in the Republican National Committee is reading it or they're just buying it to curry favor. (laughs) All right. Our last question. Brisby didn't buy it. Yeah, Prisby says no thanks. <laughs> I don't think what he said was quite that polite. <laughs> <laughs> My dog would not use obscenities. I love, you know, all of you have used all kinds of uh, puns, too, on the, on the name Bill Barr. You're lowering the bar, uh, <laughs> setting, the, setting the bar low. There have been a lot of this. Um, all right, and our final— Failing the bar. What was that one, Kim? Failing the, Failing the bar. bar. This goes back to the era of, of Nixon when uh, Bork fired Cox. And there were so many Bork puns. His Bork is worse than his bite. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go on. There were, there were a lot of them. Well, that's good stuff. All right. Our last question comes from Frank in North Carolina, who asks, are you following the NCAA basketball tournament? And who is your team? Joyce, what about you? You're a sports fan. You like to roll tide. You know, I confess, though, I've I've been sort of bogged down in Ukraine, and I just couldn't get my usual excitement for March Madness going. I didn't even do a bracket this year. And maybe that's partially sour grapes because my beloved uh, Virginia Cavaliers are not in the tournament this year. But now that we're into the games and seeing some upsets, I'm hoping that I'll watch a little bit more and, and get more excited about March Madness. All right. How about you, Kim? You have a team? So in my household, uh, my husband pays attention to not just the NCAA tournament, but the other tournaments. I do not. I pay attention to Fashion Month. If you don't know what that is, that is when the designers do their shows in New York, Paris, Milan, and London. Um, In my opinion, I believe that this year, Chanel is the winner. Beautiful shows. I was very disappointed by Louis Vuitton, but uh, Fendi, someone who I don't normally pay close attention to they had beautiful shows as well so that is my that's my sports you know if we were in a court of law kim i'd say objection your honor relevance (laughs) (laughs) that's fine jill how about you you you've uh, a rooting interest in the tournament well i of course i root for my teams the university of illinois and even my husband's team fsu but my husband is not a basketball fan and so we don't really watch it I actually understand basketball, unlike many sports. I I don't get a sport where you might end up with brain damage like football. I do understand basketball. But 
basically, no, we don't follow it. I would rather read banned books during the tournament than watch the tournament. How can I possibly hang out with you three? I love it. I can't get enough. I watch it all. And uh, if anyone has to I went ask to me, Wayne State. When is, when is my team going to be Wayne in any State? Tourney? Well, maybe one of these days, Kim. That's adorable. But uh, for now, you know who I'm picking in both the men and the women's tournament, which is also some great, great basketball. The Michigan Wolverines, uh, our women are seated third, which is a, a terrific slot, for, uh, the best ever for them. They play tomorrow, and Michigan played the very, the men's team played the very first game in the tournament yesterday. After a miserable first half, I went into class to teach. I came out expecting the worst and found that they had turned it around in the second half and miraculously won the game. So I was very excited about that. But the best moment of the tournament so far, I don't know if you guys saw this, it, it has made the rounds on Twitter, for those of you who follow sports Twitter. Um, there was a moment yesterday in um, one of the games when the basketball, as sometimes happens, like bounced really high off the rim and it landed on top of the backboard and it kind of got stuck up there. Did you, any of you see this? Oh, I and saw so, this. It's no. great. So the players, you know, they're super tall. They're trying to get it down. It's too high for them. Um, the refs get up on a chair. They're trying to get it down. They're using the mop, you know, that they use to clean the floor. They're trying to poke it. They can't reach it. And so uh, finally, out of nowhere come two cheerleaders, a male and female Indiana cheerleader. And um, the man lifts the woman up on his shoulders and then he extends his arms holding her feet so that she's up in the air. And then she very easily just reaches over and grabs the ball and drops it. And the place goes wild. The crowd erupted in cheers. So that was my favorite moment from uh, the tournament yesterday. But stay tuned for some more exciting action. Well, we received a fantastic photo of one of our listeners, a fellow sister-in-law from San Francisco named Mia Maza with her dog, Ruby. And in the photo, Mia is proudly wearing her hashtag sisters-in-law classic navy maize and blue t-shirt um, and looking good. So all of our listeners are invited to send us your photos of you in your hashtag sisters-in-law gear. You can email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. You can pose in front of your favorite landmark or wherever you wear your merch. And bonus points if you include your pet, your baby, or even your boo. But thanks for listening to this week's episode of Hashtag Sistersinlaw with Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our brand new women's tea and please support this week's sponsors, Noom, HelloFresh, Athena Club, and Bloom Nutrition. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. I often say names wrong. Mm. Oh, as long as it's not the- Are you kidding? I, I said Casablanca wrong. And I always say wrong. Casablanca? Is that how you say it? Casablanca? I'm not sure. I, I put them in red Casablanca. I wore my new pants to the basketball game. <laughs> I talk that way regularly. I talked that way for the first 22 years of my life until I got a oh, speech man. therapist who... I got. I hired her to help me get rid of my list, but she was like, "Oh, you want to go into broadcast? <laughs> okay, we're going to get rid of that Michigan yeah. accent too." I was like, "What yeah. accent?" So I've been talking like a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Mid Atlantic or Mid Atlantic accent? The rain in Spain is nearly. <laughs> but you still say pop. I don't say pop. What? Barb says pop. Oh, what a fraud you I are, Kimberly Atkins. Uh, <laughs> I was bullied by a New Yorker in law school. I was afraid of her. <laughs> and she made fun of me oh, when I said pop. And that was the last cave. time I said pop. Don't cave to the bullies, to the soda bullies. I caved. I, ca no, I had the same thing in law school. <laughs> Absolutely. It, nobody pop calls it pop. Give me death. Oh, my I was, God. I was embarrassed by a, by a girl from, from Brooklyn. 
I never did it again. It was it was a it's a painful experience. <laughs> 